Morning, church. Good to see you. If you're visiting with us, an especially warm welcome to you. My name's Peter, the pastor here at the church. As Graham mentioned, if you're visiting, come along tomorrow night. We've got the, this is our church event where I'll be sharing the vision of the church, where we've been, where we're going, and giving you the opportunity to ask any questions you want about the church. So I'd love a chance to meet you myself as well. Also, next Sunday evening, it's quite an exciting moment. We've got, you saw it in the notices, but we've got first Sunday here in Gorgie. Now, typically on the first Sunday of the month, we travel through to Glasgow for a um, big celebration event. It's, it, we are part of an apostolic network of churches. We're not an independent church. We're very much accountable and part of a bigger thing, which is great. One of the ways that expresses itself is the first Sunday event. So can I encourage you, uh, please come along next Sunday evening to the first Sunday event. Even if you're here in the morning, come along again in the evening. We're planning also on having kids' stuff available for primary age kids. So you can, if you're a family, you can come along as a family. Um, and it'll run from six o'clock till about eight o'clock latest. And it's a real opportunity. Andrew will be preaching. It'll be live streamed on the big screen. Great opportunity to connect with the big picture. So exciting. Who was in Johannesburg last week? Put your hands up if you were in Joburg. Let's hear it for this awesome team of people. Now, I know there's more than four of you. There's others probably in other services. Uh, but a team has just come back from Joburg, working with orphans there. Uh, it's the second team that have gone out now. And I think in a few weeks' time, we're going to be showing a video clip, kind of updating you guys on what happened. It, apparently, it was remarkable that you guys arrived in a daycare center. And the before and after, after the both teams had come and gone, was incredible. I mean, just totally transformed that daycare center, given those wonderful kids a better environment to live in. We believe in a God who cares for the physical needs of people as well as the eternal spiritual needs of people. That's exciting. Okay, today we're in a remarkable bit of scripture. Again, Jesus is our hero. We've been working our way through Matthew's gospel, chapter five. Chapter five to seven of Matthew's gospel is this famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus unpacks some of the most mind-blowing life-challenging truths we've ever heard. Jesus has a way of connecting with us and breaking open our mindsets in areas, and he really makes us uncomfortable. And this is one of those moments. This is a very commonly misinterpreted set of verses. We get different extremes as we'll look. But this is where we're looking at the whole theme of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and turn the other cheek. Uh, So let's pray, and then we'll turn to the Bible. Father, thank you that you're with us. God, we honor you as God. We honor you as the creator. We honor you as the author of life, as the builder of this church, as the one who performs miracles among us. Jesus, thank you for your words. I pray as we take time to dig in and contemplate and think about these verses in scripture, I pray you'd speak to us. You'd help us here. and You'd build us strong for life ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there was a, a group of soldiers, they were in South Korea, and they'd been fighting in the wars over there. It was after the war, things were settling down, they had rented an, uh, an apartment that they were staying in while still in military service. Anyway, they had a very young Korean lad help them around the house. He was like their house helper, servant. A- anything they wanted, he would get. But they treated this kid abysmally. I mean, they would constantly playing practical jokes at his expense, so they would put buckets of water above the door, so when he opened the door, the bucket of water would fall on them, and then he'd say, you've got to clean that up. And the kid just smiled and got on with it, and then they would uh, kind of leave clods of dirt on the floor, or deliberately have muddy footprints and stamp it through the house, and they would have a great laugh, and this kid would have to clear it up, and the kid just constantly just took it in the chin. They would put grease in the door handles so that he would have difficulty opening doors, and they would just wound this kid up, no end, but remarkably, he just kept bouncing back, positive, uh, no aggression, no vengeance, nothing like that. The soldiers started to feel a bit provoked by this kid. You know, they were thinking, we're treating this kid abysmally, and, uh, and he just constantly shows appreciation, and he's constantly happy. We can't treat him like this anymore. So they sat the kid down and said, listen, son, we just want to say sorry. We are not going to play any more practical jokes on you. We've been having a laugh at your expense for so long. You've been such a good-hearted person about it, but we're going to stop doing that from now on, okay? And the kid says, you sure? I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, so you mean no more 
buckets of water above door. No, no, no more buckets of water above door. You mean no more dirty footprints through the house? No, no, no more dirty footprints through the house. No more greasy knobs. No, no, no more greasy knobs. Okay, then I no more spit on your soup. (laughs) Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. What does God say about taking revenge? You have heard that it is said, Jesus speaks, you've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How should you respond when you suffer loss at the hands of another person? How should you respond when you're wronged by another? Or when you're insulted by another? Or lied to or lied about by another? How should you respond when your property or possessions are taken from you? How should you respond when someone robs you of your time? How should you respond when someone takes your money either by fraud, theft, or by just completely negligence in their behalf? How should we react? It is within our nature to want to get even, to fight back, to retaliate. We feel better in our humanness, feeling like we've evened the score. Get even mentality is typical to humanity. We make heroes of those don't take nonsense from nobody kind of people. There are heroes in the television. They're cool. People who don't impose their will on others aren't the heroes as far as humanity is concerned. It's like the kid whose t-shirt says, I don't get mad, I get even. Kind of summing up the mentality of the world we live in. What does God say about that? Well, that's what these verses are all about. Jesus here, first of all, is challenging the misinterpretation that the Jewish religious people had of what the Bible actually said. Now, he's done this on several occasions. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and he said on numerous occasions, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you, he takes their take on the Old Testament, and he says, you've got it wrong, and he turns it on its head, and he tells them what the Old Testament was really about. Jesus wasn't fighting against the Old Testament. The Old Testament is as much the Word of God as the New Testament is. You know, people who say, oh, I've heard the New Testament, don't like the Old Testament. You haven't understood, it's all God's words. It's, it's, it's all eternal, it all still stands. And Jesus wasn't undermining that, he was upholding it and saying, no, it's your interpretation of the Old Testament Pharisees and religious rabbis that you've got wrong. And he was challenging that. And this is one of those situations. So he said, you've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, I don't know about you, but I've had many people who are maybe atheists or humanists who have used this along with many other verses to say, see, your Bible contradicts itself. Your Bible says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And yet here in the New Testament, your Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Your Bible's contradicting itself. Is there a contradiction? As far as Jesus is concerned, there's no contradiction. Uh, you, You see other people saying, well, the God of the Old Testament is that mean, nasty, vindictive, vengeful God, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But the God of the New Testament, he says, he's a, he's a blonde hippie. He says, turn the other cheek. You know, so different gods, right? So these are the criticisms that come because people just don't understand what this is talking about. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. In the Old Testament, Jesus is quoting directly from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In the Old Testament, you find that occurs three times. In Leviticus 24, in Deuteronomy 19, and in Exodus 21. Let me read the one from Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hits her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm... You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hands, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wounds, stripe for stripe. That's one of the three examples where eye for eye, tooth for tooth is used in the Old Testament. 
<clears throat> Let me just make very clear, there are three caveats very clear in the Old Testament about how this law should be applied. Caveat number one is this law was to be applied by judges, not by individuals. All right? On every one of the three occasions, it's applied by judges, not individuals. So in Exodus 20, we see God's moral law. We see the Ten Commandments. That applies for every individual. Every individual has their moral responsibility before God and the way they act with people. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. They're the moral laws. But from Exodus 21 to 23, we see the civil laws. And the civil laws were upheld and overseen by judges, not by individuals. If it was the wrong way around, we would have chaos. You know, we wouldn't want individuals to apply laws that only judges and courts should apply. Imagine in your home, imagine your wife hacks you off or does something wrong. And you say, honey, bend over, you're going to get what's due. You know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Right? You would have chaos in your home if you applied laws that only should be applied in, in the courtroom in your home. That would cause chaos. Or imagine at home, your neighbor broke, you borrowed your shovel and broke it. You know, so you go around to their house and say, give me something I can break of yours then, you know? Again, you wouldn't be getting on very well with your neighbor. That would be what it would be like applying laws that judges and courts should apply, but are not designed for individuals to apply. Other way around, equally wrong. If courts applied the laws that individuals should apply in a way that individuals should. Imagine that, imagine that you went to a courtroom, imagine someone had done a, a crime and the judge said, you know what, I'm feeling in a good mood today. Jesus said, forgive you 70 times seven, so on you go, you're not so bad, just have a nice day. Just don't do it again now. And they just let that criminal loose into society. Right, it's okay for you to be merciful on an individual level, but if you apply that same mercy in the courtroom, that's dangerous to society, okay? So when you mix the two, when you apply principles that should only be applied in the courtroom in an individual level, it kills relationships. And equally, if you apply individual principles in a courtroom level, it abuses justice. And this is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day. So first thing you need to know about this law was the law was to be applied by judges, not individuals. Second thing you need to know is this. It was a just law. And the punishment is to fit the crime. Here we see, the Bible says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's very, very just. You know, the punishment fits the crime. Seems fair to me. Actually, it's a fantastic model for society to be built on. You know, if someone spray painted your wall, instead of just getting a, by the police and then they go off for it scot free, that's wrong. We all get feel hacked off about that especially if it's rubbish artwork. What should happen is they paint over it and then they give you some compensation, right? Then they learn a lesson. They also learn responsibility, okay? If you nick a car, right? Oh, well, the insurance will cover it. Well, the insurance does. And then everyone gets hit, okay? But would it not be more fair the insurance covers it and then the thief pays back the insurance company the full cost of the car and also pays compensation to the person who was hurt by the offense, does that not seem fair? And does it not seem right that the punishment should equal the crime? Otherwise, what happens is people just get let off. And in our society, not on every count, on the whole, our legal system is pretty good. But on many times, people are not, being, not feeling the responsibility of their crimes. And as a result, crime multiplies. This is incredibly just law. It provides a really good model for society. The third thing you need to know about this law is it's a very merciful law as well. It says an eye for an eye and not more. It's not like an eye, okay, I'll kill you. An eye for an eye. It limits vendettas. It restricts the judgment to only being that. And this was what the law was in place. It was a merciful law as well. It was there to restrict people's vendettas. What was happening is people typically become unrestrained in the way they react. There was a story of one guy, John Mater, who stepped out of his house one morning in Chicago, and it was on his birthday. And there on his front lawn, he found two and a half tons of manure piled 2.5 meters high on his front lawn. Now, this was from his brother in California. And this was part of a long gift-giving feud that had been going on between them. 
It started years ago when one of them wrote to the other a very insulting birthday card. In exchange, the brother replied with 50 insulting birthday cards. And this has been going on for years. There were other examples. One of the brothers delivered a two-ton stone to the guy's front yard and said, here's your pet stone, happy birthday. When it comes to the other brother's birthday, he dumped 10 tons of pebbles on his front lawn saying, the stone, the pet stone had babies, happy birthday. (laughs) Over the years, the gifts have varied between including a fully grown elephant and two busloads of choir boys. You know? It just kind of one thing, one little malicious birthday card just spiraled right out of hand, you know? So someone hits you in the nose, so you cut off his hand, so he kills you, so then your family kills his family. It just goes out of control. That's human, human nature. And an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, limited and provided mercy in the judgment. In 1989, the Iranian president at that time, Rafsan Jani, said, for every Iranian killed, we will kill five U.S. citizens, one British citizen, and one French citizen. It is human nature to allow things to escalate, to allow vendettas to multiply. And this is what the law was in place to stop. Now, Jesus was coming against the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the rabbis. And he was saying, you've heard that it said an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. And Jesus had no problem with that, but he had a big problem with how they applied it. Because the way they were applying it is they were applying a law that should only be applied by judges and courtrooms on a personal level. So as a result, there were people fighting each other, having personal vendettas for each other. They were basically using religion as their excuse to go take vengeance. See, the Bible says you can go and you can vent your anger on someone. You can get them back. The Bible says you can. And that was what they were doing. And Jesus was saying, you totally and utterly missed the point. God's put something in place in the Bible that protects people, that helps society, that promotes justice. But you have so warped it and applied it wrongly that it's, it's fueling vengeance and vendettas and vindictiveness on the inside of human beings. Jesus wasn't contradicting the Old Testament. He was upholding it. In fact, here's what it says elsewhere in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18. The same Old Testament, in fact, the same author, Moses. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Proverbs 24.29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay back the man. Sorry, I'll pay the man back for what he has done. Jesus was upholding the Old Testament. So Jesus was tackling their misinterpretation of the Scriptures. But 2,000 years later, what Jesus said has been thoroughly misunderstood. Let's look at that for a moment. So Jesus said, you've heard that it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. And he goes on to say, if someone hits you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also, and, and so on. Jesus was speaking in a way that Hebrew communicators often spoken. Jesus, like a typical Hebrew communicator, would often make radical statements in order to make an important point. Jesus was doing that. I mean, his statement is utterly radical. Do not resist an evil person. I mean, that just, oh, it doesn't sit right with us. How can we, how can we accept that? People have applied this in different ways through the years. Some people have taken it completely literally. Other people have rejected it entirely. Is Jesus saying, when it says, do not resist one who is evil, is Jesus saying that we should all be pacifists? Is Jesus saying that we should never go to court? Is Jesus saying that if you have an oppressive employer, that you can't say anything? Is Jesus saying that the woman should just submit to the rapist? Is Jesus saying that we should just allow the thief into our house. So some have taken Jesus with extreme literalism and they've applied it in a radical, literal way. Martin Luther, the reformer, several centuries ago, observed people in his day and he called them crazy saints. And he's speaking about the crazy saints, he said this, he would allow the lice to nibble him on the grounds that he should not resist an evil person. He refused to kill the lice. Crazy saints. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, he was a total pacifist. He believed that Jesus' words meant that there should be 
No police, no magistrates, no courts, no army, no soldiers, no authorities. And then we'd have utopia. Gandhi, you know, held very closely to Leo Tolstoy's ideals. We also see the Mennonites, a Christian denomination, who will not engage in any kind of form of social control or government. That's one extreme. That's applying utterly literally with the words of Jesus. The other extreme is people who hear what Jesus says about you cannot resist the evil person and turn the other cheek, and they say, no way, can't work, Jesus got it wrong. So we see, for example, Frederick Nietzsche, the the German philosopher, coming strongly against Jesus' words, and he he spoke, speaking about Jesus' words, said that this kind of attitude led to a slave morality of charity and humility. He suggested that instead of following Jesus' advice, that human beings should have competition and pride and autonomy. He said, build up the superman, not the man that Jesus described. Friedrich Nietzsche has had many followers through the years, including Adolf Hitler. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not resist one who is evil? What does that mean? It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean you can't resist evil. Because the Bible on numerous occasions tells you to resist the devil. James 4 Verse 7, 1 Peter 5, verse 9. The Bible also says in the church we should resist evil and uh, bring discipline against evildoers. Matthew 18, 17, 1 Timothy 5, 20. We also know that Jesus was not a hypocrite, surely. And yet Jesus was not a pacifist. What does it mean, do not resist an evil person? Does it mean you have to be a pacifist? Well, if that's what it meant, then Jesus was a hypocrite. Because Jesus was not a pacifist. On two occasions in the Gospels, we see Jesus making a whip of cords and driving out the money changers from the temple, okay? Sounds like he was resisting evil people to me. That was very intimidating. You imagine going into Sunday market or something or football crowd and and you being crazy enough to take on a crowd like that. You'd have to have a bit of physical presence. You'd have to have a bit of passion about you to even attempt that and for people to be intimidated enough to run. And yet Jesus did that. Jesus, man, that was aggressive. We see Jesus also verbally assaulting the Pharisees on numerous occasions in the Gospels. Okay, what about when Jesus was slapped? Jesus was slapped in his trial before the crucifixion, and he didn't turn his cheek. He didn't turn the other cheek. In fact, what he did was he came back at the man who slapped him and said, you did not do that justly. You had no reason to do that. He came back at the man. He didn't turn the other cheek. Says Jesus a hypocrite. No. Paul wasn't a pacifist in the sense that many see people being pacifists. Paul stood up for his rights. When he was about to face an illegal flogging, he stood up for his rights and said, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do that. When he was being treated unjustly, he appealed to Caesar, to a higher law court, a human law court. Jesus is not saying do not resist an evil person means that you just become some doormat, some walkover that people just kind of trundle on past. That's not what he's saying. Otherwise, he'd be a hypocrite because he didn't do that himself. So what is he saying? Okay, the word resists in the Greek language is the Greek word antisythemi, which from which we get the word antihistamine. It means to set against. So Jesus says, do not set yourself against an evil person. John MacArthur gives it this rendition. He says, do not set yourself against one who wrongs you. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is strongly forbidding personal revenge. He's saying, if someone comes at you with an evil agenda, don't you in turn take on an evil agenda against them. It's about attitudes. It's about what's going on in your soul. Don't become a vengeful, vindictive person. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, let's, let's look at what the Apostle Paul said. He, he kind of echoes this. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to verse 21. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, never avenge yourself. Hear that? The Bible forbids you taking personal revenge against another person. That's what the Bible's saying, crystal clear. But leave room for the wrath of God. 
For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's saying crystal clear, you cannot have personal vendettas. And let me say to you, some people who are so-called pacifists are being inactive in terms of their actions, and they're not physically doing anything, and yet in their heart, they have a revenge agenda. And that is just as contradictory to the words of Jesus as the person who physically retaliates. The vindictiveness in the heart that can often be in a pacifist's life is just as bad. You might be like a doormat, someone walking all over you, and you appear all pacifist and all easygoing, and yet in the inside, you're riled, you're bitter. This is just as evil, just as wrong. You know, the grizzly bear doesn't share his food with anyone except for the skunk. The grizzly bear will refuse to let any other animal eat its cash, but the grizzly bear will tolerate a skunk eating with it, because the grizzly bear, while it could easily kill the skunk, knows that that would be a battle that it would end up worse off. You see, folks, you've got to know, if you become a vindictive, revenge-filled person in your heart, it will not only damage the other person, potentially, it will hugely damage you. It will cause you ruin. It will eat you up on the inside. Now, I'm not saying it justifies what they do. I'm not saying just take everything that people throw at you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in your heart, Refuse to become a vindictive, revenge-filled person. This is what Jesus, and this is what Paul, this is what the Bible is saying, crystal clear. Don't seek revenge against an ex-spouse who has harmed you greatly. Don't seek revenge against an employer who has treated you horrendously. Don't seek revenge against the neighbor who treated you in a very unneighborly way. Don't seek revenge against a parent or someone who should have known better. Don't let that come into your heart. So Paul, speaking to individuals, says this, repay no one evil for evil. Trust God. God's the one who will repay. Don't repay yourself. Then Paul goes on a few verses later in chapter 13 of Romans, and then he goes on to speak about judges and governments. Listen, verse 1 to 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant. Who's the, who is God's servant? Someone, a government official, a judge, a police person, an army person. Is God's servant to do you good? But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Here the Bible, again, it's the same way the Old Testament. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. is to be applied by the law courts, not by individuals. When it comes to individuals, we found in Proverbs and Leviticus, it says, don't have a vengeful spirit. It's exactly the same thing the New Testament's saying. When it comes on a personal level, don't want to get even. Don't seek revenge. But when it comes to judges and law courts and governments and police and armies, the Bible says that God's put them there to administer justice. Not to administer mercy, but to administer justice. Now, you need to know even above that, there's an eternal judge. Because earthly judges don't always get it right. Then the eternal judge says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So leave it to him. You know, a Christian soldier sometimes may have to kill. According to the Bible, he is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Christian judges may have to imprison people. Christian policemen or women may have to can I use force? However, on an individual level, we should never have vengeance or wrath as our agenda. You are allowed to take people to court. That's justice. You are allowed to speak up for yourself. That's justice. You are allowed to, you know, kind of act in self-defense. That's justice. If someone broke into my house with the agenda of killing my family, what would I do? I would deck him. To the best of my ability, I would deck the guy. I would take him out. Big style. 
And then after I've decked him, I'd phone the police, I'd resuscitate him, get him a cup of coffee, get the Bible out, tell him I didn't really hurt, hate him, I just wasn't going to let him kill anyone. You need to believe in Jesus and repent for your sins. I'd talk to him about faith in God. I'd get him arrested and locked up in prison for as many years as his crime deserved. But I, I, if it was possible, I'd keep in touch with him in prison, write to him, send him the Bible, encourage him to go to chaplaincy. Seriously, I'd deck the guy. The big issue is justice. The big issue is love. The big issue is don't have a vengeful spirit. Be forgiving. Be just. These are the big issues throughout the Bible. There is no contradiction. Jesus is radically challenging you when it says do not resist an evil person. It doesn't mean like, don't resist. It means being against them in your heart. That's what the Bible's talking about. Um, so you need to get some self-defense classes because I don't think all of you would be able to deck the thief. And then what Jesus does is this. Jesus then throws out four examples to do with basic human rights that are basic to all of us. He goes on and gives us four examples. First example is when someone attacks your dignity. All right, Jesus said, you have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Many people apply this like this newly married couple applied this. They just got married. It was in the olden days when it was just horses and carriages, not a limousine. They were getting the horse and the, the kind of little carriage and, and the horse and carriage off to honeymoon. And as they were going off to their honeymoon, the horse takes fright and bolts. And they manage to bring the horse under control. And the husband shouts to the horse, okay, that's one. And then they just keep going. A few minutes later, the horse bolts again, gets, takes fright again, bolts. And they bring the horse under control and say, okay, that's two. And then a bit further on, a few miles later, the horse takes fright again and bolts. And the man gets a shotgun and blows the horse's brains to bits. The wife turns to the husband and said, I utterly disagree with you. That's so vindictive and wrong. He said, okay, that's one. Many people apply this, this verse in this way, right? So it's like, turn the other cheek, okay, go on. One, okay. Now this one. Two, right. I'm going to take you on now. Many people apply it that way. That's not what the Bible's saying. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what is he saying? Is this meant to be interpreted literally? No. I believe absolutely 100% in the infallibility of Scripture. I believe in understanding it the way it was written to be understood. This is not one that you should take literally. Okay, imagine you were learning to speak English and you were in dialogue with me and I said, oh, see that person who just hit the nail on the head today? You'd be thinking, he's been involved with carpentry all afternoon. That's what you'd be thinking. He's been involved with carpentry. Well, thanks for telling me. That's not what I mean, Right? When I say he hits the nail on the head, I'm saying he got it right. Now, when Jesus is saying turn the other cheek, that had big implications in Jesus' culture. I know this wasn't what he meant, otherwise Jesus would be a hypocrite. Because again, let's refer back to Jesus' trial, John 18, 22 to 23. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him on the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I have done something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke truth, why did you strike me? Jesus didn't turn the other cheek. He's not talking about literal turning of the cheek. He's making a bigger, far more important point than that. The Jews, as with other people in the Middle East, saw that one of the most insulting, one of the most demeaning things that anyone could do to you is to give you a backhanded slap. Right hand, backhanded, slap your right cheek. It was a demeaning thing to have done to you. One slave, a Roman slave called Epitas, said this A slave would rather be thrashed with a whip than to be slapped by the back of his master's hand. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, You're experiencing a demeaning, insulting attitude from another person. How should you respond? The sub-messages do not respond with insult to insult. 
First Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. There's a story of two guys who were sworn enemies. They'd been enemies since they were nursery school, and they constantly insulted each other. So in nursery school, they would insult each other, and the other in return would insult them back. Primary school, exactly the same went on. Through high school, eventually at university, they just insulted each other consistently, constantly getting one back each other, one on, one on each other. Eventually, after university, their ways parted. One went on to become a bishop in the Church of England. One went on to become an admiral in the Navy. Years later, randomly, they met in a train station, and they were both in their kind of regalia. The admiral was in his navy blue suit with kind of gold braided uh, kind of stuff on his arms, and um, the other guy was, was, was in his kind of gown as a bishop. The bishop just couldn't resist, and he saw his friend, or his, his enemy. He turned to him and said, excuse me, porter, can you tell me when the next train is? To which the admiral replied, certainly, madam, <laughs> but do you think you should be traveling in your condition? <laughs> Jesus is saying the backhanded slap is one of the most insulting, demeaning things that could happen. If someone has treated you in a very demeaning, insulting way, you should not come and do the same back to them. Folks, don't worry about your dignity. If you believe in Christ, one day you're going to spend all eternity in the presence of God as a king or a queen, ruling and reigning for all eternity. And the Bible says he will be pouring out the immeasurable riches of his grace on you daily for all eternity. So don't worry about your dignity. That box is seriously ticked if you're Christ's. People insulted Martin Luther King Jr. consistently through his life. But the incredible thing about Martin Luther King Jr. is he just didn't come back, didn't fight back. Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays at Martin Luther King's funeral after he was assassinated, in his benediction, speaking about Martin Luther King, said this, this man was loved by many and hated by others. If a man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. His house was bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, seeking the limelight for his own glory, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed 30 times, occasionally deeply hurt because his friends betrayed him. And yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of the world preaching non-violence and redemptive power of love. Incredible. How can anyone have this ability to withstand that kind of insult and just absorb it and not react and not let it touch your soul? Well, Jesus Christ is our example. Jesus, at the end of his life, was beaten, was spat upon, was mocked, was flogged, was stripped naked, and was given a criminal's death, treated with utter disdain. He says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, predicting about the coming of Christ and the sufferings that he would face on the cross, Isaiah said, I will give my back to, to those who strike and my cheeks to those who will pull out my beard. I hid not my face from the disgrace and the spitting. Jesus, instead of chickening out from that moment, went through with the incredible sufferings. People pulled his beard from his face. People lacerated his back with a Roman whip. They treated him with disdain. They treated him like a common criminal. And yet this was God in the flesh, dying for your sins, for my sins, because we're the criminals, we're the sinners. He took our punishment. He died in our place. So if you don't want to go to hell, you need to believe in Jesus who took hell for you. He became your substitute. He died in your place so you could be eternally forgiven and saved. And today, if you haven't been saved by him, if you haven't given your total trust to him and put him first in your life, he's alive, risen from the dead, and he is the only savior who can save you from eternity without him. He did that for you. He did it for you. And as he was hanging on the cross, he prays Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's incredible. Not a vengeful spirit, but a merciful spirit. In fact, the whole purpose of us dying on the cross was so that you and I could be totally forgiven. That's a 
big free gift from God at his expense. But look at the attitudes. Look at the attitudes. Turn the other cheek, Jesus says. It's the same attitude. Jesus wasn't a doormat. He wasn't a walkover. And yet he didn't have a vengeful spirit in him. He had a merciful, loving spirit. And that's what God wants you to be like. 1 Peter 2, verse 20 to 23. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, as a Christian, if you're going to believe in Christ, you will suffer. Now, if some people, not in a nonsense way, said, well, that's sickness and that's hardships in life. It's not talking about that. When it's talking about suffering, it's talking about people will persecute you. People will be out to get you. People will put you down. People will insult you like they insulted Christ. But you know what? When that happens, you should do what Christ did. When you feel powerless to stand against the insults, entrust yourself to God who judges. God says vengeance is mine. God will judge. Don't worry. Entrust yourself to him. The second example Jesus gives us is when someone attacks your security. Matthew 5 verse 40 says this, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now your tunic in those days was your undergarment. That was your, like your vest. You have several vests, or they did in those days. People had several vests that needed changed regularly. Whereas their outer garment, their cloak, most people in those days only had one. It also acted like their blanket at nighttime when it was cold. Bear in mind, this is a very different day and age to what we're living in, right? I mean, today we have two cloaks, okay? This was not necessarily a reference to someone stealing your clothes, okay? Although that would be funny. This is more talking about a lawsuit. This was, it was commonplace in those days when there was a criminal proceeding taking place, and if you were being fined for something you had done wrong, that one of the fines imposed could be the removal of your cloak, so in this example Jesus is giving, when someone attacks your security, actually, it's not necessarily you being attacked because you're the innocent party. It might be here, you're being sued because you've been an umpty, because you've made mistakes. And the Bible here, Jesus says, when you're in the wrong, take it in the chin. If you're being sued, then do you know what? Go over and above in your recompense. You know, I've got good friends in this church they had a marriage breakdown years and years ago. And in their marriage breakdown, he was in the wrong. He had made bad financial decisions. He was very much in the wrong. And they separated because of his mistakes. But you know what he did? He took responsibility before God. He got the best job he could find. He earned all the money to pay back the debt. And over on top of that, he just lived on virtually nothing and gave the rest of his money back to his family to let his family know he had changed and he was doing everything he could to put things right. That marriage is now restored. That family is doing great. But look at the attitude. It wasn't just, all right, I'll, I'll pay so the kids can get some money. No, no, it was over and above that. I, w- I was in the wrong. Have a ton of money. Here's, the, here's my cloak as well. I acknowledge, I've taken the chin, I was in the wrong. When you've made a mistake, folks, don't be stingy in the way you let people know that you are repentant. Let people know very clearly you've got it. Example three, when someone takes away your liberty. Matthew 5, 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. It was the custom of Romans, and before that it was the custom of the Persians. When they were superpowers dominating the world, Roman soldiers could easily, at any point, bring you into their service. And what would happen is, you'd get a tap on the shoulder with a spear, and they would say, carry my luggage. And you would have to, no matter what you were doing, no matter how busy you were, no matter what you were doing at that time, you would have to pick up that Roman soldier's luggage and walk with him a thousand paces, which is a little bit more than one mile. You had to do it. That was, it was enforced. And you have no idea how much the Jewish people resented this. They utterly resented having to take the time out of their schedule to serve the Romans who they resented even being there. And they, they, they resented that this was imposed upon them. And it really was a way of the Romans kind of communicating to the Jews that we loathe you. That was what was being communicated. Well, Jesus is saying, 
go the extra mile. Do you know what going the extra mile does? If you, in that moment, if someone is treating you in that way, and you actually go the extra mile for them, you're making a choice to not allow it to touch your soul. You're making a choice in that moment, I'm not going to allow the way they're treating me to cause me to be vindictive. In fact, I'm just going to joyfully go the extra mile. You've made a choice in that moment about your attitude. And you know what also, also I love about this? In that moment, the Roman centurion is trying to communicate disdain for you. When you go the extra mile, the Roman centurion didn't expect that. All of a sudden, he feels blessed by you. He wanted you to feel disdain. And you've said, right, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not going to let the devil hijack this situation. I'm going to turn the situation around. And I'm going to let this person after this, this person who meant me harm, they're going to go away after this thinking, they blessed me. And that will mess with their brain. <laughs> it's an opportunity to communicate love. When someone is mistreating you in your workplace, when someone is treating you like a walkover, and you make a choice in that moment to go out your way to be a blessing to that person, that communicates very, very strongly something about God. It communicates big style. And it stops it touching your soul and becoming vengeful in your soul. The fourth example is this. When somebody takes your property, Jesus said in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. Here Jesus is absolutely coming at the heart of our self-centered possessiveness that we have as human beings. We want to hoard. We forget that we are stewards of everything that God has given us. Everything we have comes from God. You know, so for example, when Graham earlier was talking about the offering, when we're giving financially, all we're doing is we're saying, God, you have already given to me and therefore I give back to you. Everything we have, our property, our belongings, our money, everything, if we're to believe the Bible, is not ours anyway. It has been entrusted to us by God. And Jesus is coming against this kind of selfish possessiveness that we often have. He's provoking us to be generous. He's provoking us to go the extra mile and love people. Jesus himself was generous in the way he interacted. Now, Jesus, at birth, was born into a very poor family. We know that because when Mary and Joseph, on Jesus' eighth day, took him to the temple, they offered a dove as a sacrifice, as a dedication sacrifice for Jesus. That was a poor person's sacrifice. So he was born into a poor family. At some point down the way, some wealth came their way. The Magi came along. The wise men, they gave them very expensive gifts. We don't know the quantity of it, but it was very expensive. Jesus also had money in his ministry. Judas looked after the, the kind of cash pot. Here's an example. John 13, 29. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to go and buy what they needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. Why would they assume Jesus had sent Judas to do that? Well, they would have assumed that because that's what Jesus often probably did. Jesus, on a regular basis, I would guess, would be sending Judas with their money to go and help poor people. You see, you can't give if you ain't got. That's true prosperity. When you're prospering, it's not about what you can get, right? That's wrong prosperity. That's the world's definition of prosperity. God's definition of prosperity is, sure, your needs are met, but way over and above that, you have more than you need so you can meet someone else's need. And Jesus here went out and met the needs of others. And he's saying, do you know what? If someone comes and asks something from you, go meet the need. Now, if, if someone's begging and they're homeless and they're asking you for money, is it right to give them money? Many of you in this auditorium were homeless. Is it right to give money? Well, oftentimes that money goes to drugs or drink. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you don't know the difference. You don't know what will happen with this money. Well, listen, that's up to you whether or not you give the money. But it's good to give love, Right? And you could buy a cup of coffee, or at least you could give a smile and treat, like, treat them like a human being. Either way, give something. Jesus is saying we must live in a generous approach. How can you be like Jesus? How can I be like Jesus? When Jesus was treated with disdain, when treated, Jesus was treated with insults, when Jesus was physically attacked, when people took a loan of Jesus, he responded, Father, forgive them. How is that possible as a human being to live that way? Well, you need his power. You need his help. You know what? You've got to die. You've got to die to your rights. You've got to die to your wrongs. 
Here's a statement from John MacArthur. He said this, when you've forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught and you sting and hurt with the insult of the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of it and when your wishes are crossed and when your advice is disregarded and when your opinions are ridiculed and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but you take it in patiently, loving silence, that's dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that's dying to self. When you are content with any circumstance, any food, any offering, any clothing, any climate, any society, any interruption by the will of God, that's dying to self. When you can never care to refer to yourself in a conversation or record your own good works or itch after the commendation of others, when you truly love to be unknown, that's dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with them in spirit, and feel no envy or question God, while your own needs are far greater and your circumstances are more desperate. That's dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, and you can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up in your heart. That's dying to self. The only way we can respond like Jesus is saying we should respond without vengeance in our soul is that we die to ourselves. Are you dead yet? Galatians 2.20 says, this is how Paul lived. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. No longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Lord God, we just want to honor you and adore you, God, for your wisdom and for your truth. Thank you, God. God, we want to say thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you, God, for the Old Testament, which for so often, even in our lives, we so often misinterpret. Jesus, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for reinforcing the justice and the truth of the Old Testament. And thank you for challenging us on the inside as individuals not to be vengeful, vindictive, or seeking harm against anyone. You not only taught us these things, Jesus, you modeled them for us. As you died on the cross, as you took the insults, as you felt the, the total injustice of how people were treating you, and yet, you responded with love, yet you responded with forgiveness, yet you responded with mercy. Lord, I just want to thank you for every person here, God. I love these people, God. Thank you, God, that you love them. Thank you, God, that you've revealed to us some truth today, God, and I pray that we will live in a way that is non-vengeful. You know, it might be some of you here today, it might be that in your heart, I mean, you faced, I know a large number of you faced deep injustices against yourself. There's also a large number of you who have caused injustices to others, whether you meant it or not. But for those who are feeling the injustice of what was done to you, you've been battling with vengeful feelings. You may have even resolved not to do anything about it. You're not going to go and do the vengeance but in your heart, you're feeling it. You're angry. You're vengeful in your heart. Well, if that's you, I just want to encourage you just to now in God's presence. Just to talk to Him about that. And just to release that vengeance. 
to release that anger, to release that bitterness. Stop justifying it. Stop holding on to it. Stop feeding it. As best you can, stop going over the situation and fueling that fire that's already there. Let God come. Let God heal you right now. God, I pray, come by your spirit. For those who are carrying deep hurts, deep pain, I'm asking God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and it's only by that power of your spirit that we can overcome that. Come and give us newness of heart. Give us love where there was hate. Give us peace. Give us mercy. Give us the ability to forgive when there's vengeance and bitterness in our souls. So just talk to God about that just now. might be that some of you here today that you're currently fighting for your rights in a situation God wants you to die to yourself God wants you to die to your rights and your wrongs and it all to do with trust do you trust God enough to make sure that justice will be done do you trust God enough that he can fight your battles And there are some battles you're not meant to fight because you're doing it from a wrong spirit. Let God do it. Maybe there's others here today and you know, the question is, are you saved? Do you know God? The amazing truth that we see in the Bible is this, that God's love for you is so immense, so huge, that Jesus was willing to come and to ultimately die on the cross he died in your place he died so you could be forgiven he died so you could have a new eternal life and if that's you today and you're saying Peter I believe that and I want that to happen for me if you're here today and you're saying Peter I believe that Jesus died for me I believe that he rose again And today I'm willing to yield my life, my future to him. And today I'm going to put my faith in him and let him be number one in my life. So that's you today. I invite you just to pray a prayer with me, just very quickly, just quietly under your breath. Repeat this prayer after me and let this be your prayer of commitment to God. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me. Thank you, Jesus, that because you love me, you were willing to go the whole way and die on the cross. You died the criminal's death that I should have died for my sins. You took the punishment that I should have taken because I'm a sinner. You died so I could be forgiven. And today I put my faith in you as my saviour. Please forgive me. Save me. Give me a new star with you. Jesus, I believe that on the third day you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive now. And today I yield my life, my future to you. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer for accepting me today as your child. Amen. Okay, keep your eyes closed. It's really important. If you prayed that prayer, I believe God heard you, I believe God accepts you, and I believe God saves you. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love the privilege of praying for you. If you made that commitment to be Christ's followers today, then just in order to know who I'm praying for, I want to ask God to bless you. In order to know who I'm praying for, just where you are, can you just very simply raise your hand nice and high then put it down again. If you prayed that prayer, if you made that commitment, pop your hand up now and I'll pray for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Just put your hand up nice and clear. Anyone else who prayed that prayer? Okay, God, thank you so much for these precious individuals today. In your presence, they've made a decision 
to let you be the saviour, to trust you for forgiveness. And they've decided that they're going to be your followers from now on. I pray, God, that this would be the beginning of a new life for them, that this would be the first day in an eternal life that they're going to share with you. Help them to plug into church where they can grow in their faith. Let this be the beginning of a great adventure for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's stand to our feet. Let's worship God. As we worship, let God just move among you. At the end of the service, we'll give opportunity.